Welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode of our new Politics and Risk series, we have SVP of Government Affairs for the Council, Joel Koprud, interviewing Representative Sean Caston of Illinois. They have a very interesting and insightful conversation around the House Speaker vote that's currently ongoing. Um, Inflation Reduction Act and Renewable Energy, as well as the current political climate. It's a great conversation. Then we get a quick rundown from Joel and Blair Bartlett on the current issues government affairs is tackling. Give it a listen. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining our latest iteration of uh, the Government Affairs Podcast here at the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. My name is Joel Copperwood. I'm Senior Vice President of Government Affairs. Uh, And I'm joined by Congressman uh, Sean Caston from uh, the 6th District of Illinois. Sean has been a very good friend of the council since he was first uh, elected in 2018. He was appointed on the Financial Services Committee, which oversees all the property casualty insurance issues on which we we advocate for. Uh, And he joins the committee with a really interesting uh, background and perception on how he what, how he views his role here in Congress. I don't think there's anyone on the committee that has more of a unique focus on climate change issues than Sean. And he has built a very rich career in the green energy space. He's smarter than anyone uh, on my team when it comes to green energy development. And I don't have to tell any of the listeners that climate change and climate risk has catapulted the insurance industry to the front line. And it's something that we are increasingly dealing with. So it's an honor to have you join our podcast today, Sean. Uh, I know that we've stayed in touch over the years, and we actually interviewed you, I don't know if you recall this, for our magazine, Leader's Edge, uh, in 2018 when you were a freshman. deep cut, but that was a while ago, yeah. That was a long time ago, um, and I want to follow up on some of that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I didn't say anything to embarrass myself or, you know, anything. That... <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into the climate stuff, uh, I mean, I want to ask you a little bit about what just happened on the House floor. So literally... Just minutes ago, you voted again for Speaker or Leader Jeffries to be the Speaker of the House. Obviously, he doesn't have the votes. You're in the minority party. But this was the third vote to demonstrate that we can't get a Speaker. And we are 17, 18 days in of an unprecedented run of not having a Speaker of the House. Total political paralysis. I would, Every... I would, I would clarify, this is the 18th time we voted for a Speaker in the 118th Congress. Oh, my God. Yeah, not to make it more depressing. It's only the, it's only the <laughs> third time this round, right? Yeah. So how what's how are you talking about this now? What's the likely outcome? I know I have uh, friends on the other side of the aisle who they say that it is the idea, the notion of voting for a, a speaker that might attract Democratic support is politically toxic right now, and they just cannot envision that scenario. And it seems to me like in this at one o four p.m. this Friday afternoon that the most likely scenario would be empowering. Speaker, temp, temporary Speaker Patrick McHenry with some kind of power to so at least fund the government, fund the wars in Ukraine and Israel and get us through some of these crises until we can get a more permanent solution. Is that not the viable path forward? I mean, yeah, look, if, if, if I could tell you who the leadership of the Republican Party is, we could then have a conversation about whether they have a strategy that's informed by logic. I get hung up on the first part of that question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know who's running the show over there. Right. It's not McCarthy. It's not Scalise. Um, I mean, as Hakeem voted, you know, there's something that's very appropriate that the guy who came in second in their internal caucus meeting to run for speaker um, is their nominee on the floor, which is fitting for a party that's built on election denial. <laughs> right? um, but I think like, you know, take the humor out of it. 
What is so, I think, hard for those of us who, who love this institution to grapple with is that the, you know, the, the party of Lincoln, the, you know, the party that, that, that saved our union is, is now basically two separate parties. You've got, you've got one party that is very culturally conservative, but believes that government should work. And another party that is very culturally conservative and believes that government shouldn't work. And those two parties really don't like each other, but they they are caucusing together for the time being because if they were to split apart, neither of them independently has any power. And and so we're sitting here in this moment saying, you know, this this civil war within the party, like yes, there's a very logical path that says we can find lots of people who could get 300 plus votes on the floor, but because the Republicans are in the majority, they control what comes to the floor. And, you know, we saw, you know, the end of the McCarthy era was because we passed a continuing resolution with roughly 300 votes on the floor that got the, the pro-governance wing of the Republican Party and all the Democrats to support it. And that, that initiated the civil war. Mm -hmm. When we had amendments in the NDAA to provide aid for Ukraine, we got roughly that same 300, I think 311 you know, caucus that, you know, that, that agreed to support that. So there, there is a substantial governing majority in the house, but to acknowledge that government majority would require the Republican party to, to basically split themselves in two. Um, and uh, we need, we need two governing parties in this country. Um, we don't have one and it's unclear how you get through this until they heal themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded I think three years ago, Pelosi said to me at one point that the Republican Party is incapable of fixing themselves, but we don't have the power to fix them either. Yeah. And, and I don't know how that ends. So a couple of years ago, we were just coming out of the pandemic and a congressman from Massachusetts, we were talking about some of these broader politics, which haven't changed since then, I don't think. And he said at the time, which was very accurate, he said, look, Washington is no longer, the battles in Washington are no longer fought between the two parties, the battles are fought within the two parties. And at the time, he said, for Democrats, it's capitalists versus socialists. And he said, for Republicans, it's constitutionalists versus authoritarians. Fast forward to everything that you just talked about, the Civil War and the other side of the aisle. Here we are now. Democrats seem very united, but it's easy to be united when you're in the opposition. Do you envision a scenario if Democrats do take back the House, which I think if the election were held tomorrow, they probably would. Do you Would you see a similar scenario where we would be back to division of, as the other guy put it, capitalists versus socialists? Or will do you see we will stay a united front? Well, I mean, look, we, we had the same thin majorities that they have right now in the last term, and we got an awful lot done as a united party. Um, you know, I, I think what's I think what makes it easier for the Democrats to stay united is what makes what makes easy. I think for you know any of us in our friendships or professional lives, we know people who have who have very different views about the best way to get from point A to point B. But as long as we agree that we're heading to point B, we can get along with each other, right? And you know between the the right flank and the left flank of the Repo of the Democratic Party. There's a very broad agreement about where we want to get to, you know, equal treatment under the law, peaceful transfer of power, women's right to choose, full equality for, you know, everyone in our society to be their best and truest self. Um, you know, a, uh, I wouldn't say it's capitalism and socialism. I, I think it's that, uh, 
oh, who, who's the, I'm forgetting his name now. He's a wonderful writer. Um, he said that the uh, capitalism is the tool we use to pay for socialism. Um, <laughs> you know, and and I, I think there are healthy debates about like what parts of our society are best served with market measures, what parts of our society are best served with government protection, with government resources. And no one in the Democratic Party believes that that uh, there's nothing in either box. Like I don't, I don't think anybody's saying we should privatize our military. <laughs> um, but that's a healthy debate. I think what's harder on the Republican side is I don't know that they agree about A to B. Like, you know, you're, if 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 one of you is for constitutionalism, the other one is for authoritarianism. That's a very different view of where we're going. You know, that's a very different view of. Are we a country of laws where everybody is treated equally under the law? Do we agree that the best way to solve hard problems is through the democratic process or not? That's not a, how do we get from A to B? That's, I want to go to B and you want to go to X. Not you personally, Joel, but you yeah. understand. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. So the climate stuff is, you know, it's front and center for our industry right now. There's a hearing in the Financial Services Committee and the Insurance Subcommittee next Tuesday. This is going to be one of the top issues. That are complicating our insurance space, but from where you sit and the the background that you have in green energy, you talked to us in 2018 about at that time there was significant capital in global markets that you thought should be refocused uh, to start building a better, broader infrastructure to generate more green energy, uh, just in general to combat combat the fossil fuels and lower the carbon output and all of that. That was four to five years ago. Now it has. How has your thinking, or has it evolved since then? Given we're in a different economy, post-pandemic, different realistic outcome, vision. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Uh, it, it's funny. I was uh, I spoke to the Netroots Nation event in Chicago um, over the summer, and you know, obviously a far left group. And I said to them that I think the 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 lesson of the IRA is that we passed the single biggest climate investment ever passed by any government anywhere. And we should take tremendous pride of that. And it is genuinely going to reduce CO2 emissions in the US by 40%, which is 60% less than what's necessary. And and my my exhortation to these, you know, very, you know, it's very far left room was that there is nothing wrong with dancing in the end zone after a touchdown and simultaneously not popping the champagne bottle to assume you've won the game. Mm -hmm. And and that's sort of the moment we're in because we, you know, maybe to push that metaphor too hard, we need to intercept the next three plays, hold possession in the remaining few minutes we've got in this game if we're actually going to win. And, you know, the, the pace of climate change has not slowed down. Um, we are finally starting to move in the right direction, but we still are facing these, these huge and massive disruptions. And, you know, maybe just to pick on, you know, the metaphor we used in the last question, what would a world look like where capital allocation in the United States was only based on, on free market, free market with no government oversight? Um, I think it's completely reasonable to conclude that no one would insure properties on the Gulf Coast. Um, you'd probably wouldn't get any insurance in wildfire prone regions either or other areas subject to climate risk. You would see a massive shift in energy capital markets into clean energy because it's cheaper. You know, if you've got the choice to own an asset that has zero marginal cost, that's providing something that people want, electricity, heat, whatever, or something that has a non-zero marginal cost, which one are you going to build, right? Um, 
And with that flood of capital, you would see a complete decimation of communities that today depend for jobs on the production of more expensive, less competitive energy sources, namely oil, gas, and coal. So that's that's what would happen in a world completely informed by capitalism. I think the challenge that we're working through right now, and I don't need to tell you this or your your you know, is that none of us none of us actually live in that competitive market world. And if you are, you know, the state of California, and your property insurers are saying, I don't want to invest here anymore because I don't. I can't actually, I can't actuarially protect myself from the risk if you're only going to use backward looking assessments. Um, do you as a Californian legislator, do you say, yeah, that's fine. I'm going to raise the rates for Californians because you need to lose forward. You need to recover your costs and then lose your next election. Or do you say, well, you can't do that. And that means that insurers are going to leave the state. We're seeing that play out in Florida. We're seeing that play out in Louisiana. How does that work? On the on the positive side, these huge flights of capital, which are which are really really good things, and are leading. You know, we fifteen years ago, fifty percent of all power in the U.S. came from coal. Today, it's less than eighteen percent, and we generate more power from renewables than from coal. That's not because we're woke. <laughs> it's because it's cheaper. That's awesome. Then, in the meantime, look at what that transition has done to places like West Virginia, where you've got surging rates of opioid addiction, surging, you know, rates of unemployment, um, you know, communities that can't attract capital. That's, that's a real issue as well. And as, and, you know, and as humans and fellow Americans, we had to look out for those people. So how do we manage that? And, you know, I, I just feel more and more like every, every piece of our financial market is grappling with this question of um, how do we, how do we embrace capitalism that's moving us in a direction that is that is positive on the one hand, scary on the other hand? Um, and to what degree do we allow a social safety net to stay in place or get expanded that blocks that movement of capital, but also means that the next storm that's going to be bigger than the last storm is now going to cause much more damage because we didn't get people out of the way. That's fascinating. You mentioned the IRA. <clears throat> I actually just had a meeting yesterday with one of our advocates in Brussels, uh, and he mentioned the IRA when we were talking about issues that we're working on. And he said, "In Europeans, European regulators and you know advocates in our space were beside themselves in shock that the country, that the United States, put this much money into the green energy. Like it was great. They were shocked, but wow, were they beside themselves? And it ran, you know, it ran afoul of some of the agreements that we had made with Europeans, but they were okay with that because of the broader good of getting from A to B and all of that. But I, my response to him was, wow, you know more about the IRA than 95% of Americans. <laughs> and I hear Democrats talk about like one of the things that they're, the Biden campaign is going to campaign on is everything that they got accomplished. A lot of things that they got accomplished were wrapped in the IRA and a handful of other bills that were just behemoth bills. How do you message this? How many of your constituents know what the IRA is? I mean, the IRA is a healthcare bill. It's a green energy bill. It is everything. And we run around saying, Democrats run around saying the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. How does that green? How, <laughs> it just seems like such a challenge to message this and get. Well, look, as a, know what we've done. I, I I say this only half jokingly that the reason the reason that bill is called the Inflation Reduction Act is because that's how we got Joe Manchin to stop blocking it. Hmm. <laughs> it's not it's not because it was poll tested with a great you know brand management firm to come up with how to how to put that through. Um, 
look, I could, I could come up, I could, I could identify all sorts of bills that have horrible names. And if that's all you're going to do, you know, that's a problem. Um, but I think in general, people understand policies, they understand the differences that are coming through, you know, you know, being able to say to people, um, you know, your insulin costs went down. Yeah, I know that, you, you know, the next, you know, you know, the next, next year, you're no longer going to, you know, you're going to have a cap on your out-of-pocket payments under Medicare Part D, and you're not going to pay more than $2,000 a year. And, you know, when you talk to seniors who know exactly what that means um, and understand what that means for them, um, you know, pointing out to people all the investments that are coming through, whether from infrastructure or the hydrogen hub that we just got approved in Illinois, you know, people can see those jobs, can see those coming through. Um I mean, I remember I, I did a town hall on inflation right when, you know, when inflation was sitting at 9%. And, and I had a constituent who said to me that he, he didn't feel like Democrats were doing enough to lower inflation. And I said, well, did you get a raise last year? And he paused. He said, yeah. And I said, was it a good raise? And he said, yeah, it was actually a really good raise. And I said, well, I'm, I'm delighted for you. Does it bother you that it was inflationary? Do you, have, do you have more money in your bank account right now than you did last year? Well, yeah, I do. Like, okay. <laughs> like, yes, we've got some problems on inflation and, you know, and there's a global phenomenon, but, you know, because of what we've done, we've given you more bargaining power. Um, and, and we're seeing wages grow up, especially for, you know, the lower quartiles of our economy, specifically because of what we did. And you just affirmed that you've seen that personally in your pocket. So let's talk about how we did that. And like, now you're having a conversation as opposed to just talking about headlines. And, and I've certainly found that, you know, once you get to that one-on-one -on -one level, people really appreciate it and understand it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we're running up on time. I have two issues that I want to ask you, two questions that I want to ask you. And we ask every member that joins our podcast these same questions. Uh, first question, what's the number one issue that you're hearing about from your constituents right now? Um, you know, it's really, I mean, look, in, in this week, if you're, if you would have asked me that two weeks ago, I would have had something different to say. Um, in this week, what's happening in Israel is just terrific. And, you know, I, in general, I think foreign policy doesn't drive American voters very much, but the phones are ringing off the hook. You know, frankly, on I represent the largest Palestinian community in Illinois. Um, so they're ringing off, they're ringing off the hook on, on, I, I hate to say both sides of the issue. What Hamas did was horrible and is inexcusable, but that is a very animating issue right now. Um, you know, I would have had a different answer a few weeks ago, but that's what's consuming a lot of our bandwidth today. I mean, there was a tragic, I know there was a tragic uh, crime not, not far from your... Yeah, yeah, the, yeah no, and the, the service was, was you know, it's was just outside of my district, but it was very tightly interwoven into the community in Bridgeview and, and Palos and some of those communities down there. That's it's this neighborhood that's called Little Palestine. It's a very tightly knit group and just, just horrible, right? And you know, and, and and not not to make these things political, but it is I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that after 9-11, the first speech George Bush said was we are not at war with Islam. And after the Unite the Right rally in Charlotte, Donald Trump said there are very fine people on both sides. And, you know, there is every, every Jewish person I talk to tells me at some point about how much more security they have at their temple right now because of what the right wing has done to animate, animate anti-Semitism. And every, um, uh, you know, Muslim or Muslim looking person um, who I talk to 
is also, you know, keenly aware of what Trump did with the Muslim ban and the demonization of the other that happened with that. And, you know, there's there's legitimate fear in a lot of marginalized communities about what's happening with this very, um, very authoritarian anti-rule of law spirit that's animated the far right in this country. Um, and I think it behooves us all to call that out. Um, and it scares me how partisan it is to call it out. I mean, I mean, look, I just got back from the floor. Right before I got to the floor, there was a leak that in the Republican caucus, Republican members of Congress who were having getting threats left on their spouse's cell phones. And Warren Davidson from Ohio said, well, you know, that's just because you voted against Jordan and suggested that maybe that was appropriate. Like how hard would it, why is it hard to say, to just condemn using violence to achieve political ends? I mean, that's, that's kind of the working textbook definition of terrorism. And yet who in the Republican party is actually condemning it? Uh, and it makes for an interesting segue to my second question that we ask every member, which is, who's your favorite member to work with on the other side of the aisle? You know, I, I, <laughs> I'm chuckling because I've been asked that term my first since I've been here. And every time I answer that question, the person I name loses their next election. My first, no. term, <laughs> in my first term, it was Denver Riggleman. Um, and, now and now he's gone. Um my second term, it was Fred Upton, and you know, Fred decided to step down. Um, and I, I almost don't want to don't want to curse people right now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, you know, I have a very good friendship with John Curtis um, from Utah, who's a who's a good soul. Um, I, I don't want him to leave, right? <laughs> but I'm, but I'm, uh, I'm reluctant to sing his name too loud because I'm, you know, I'm I'm batting a thousand on a on a game I don't want to win. You know, it's frustrating because we did a very good job at covering the polarization, but one thing we try to do is pull back the curtain and show that there are actually a lot of good, strong bipartisan relationships up here. There's actually a lot of bipartisan work that gets done at the committee levels on various bills. We had uh, Senator George Marshall from Kansas talk to us a few weeks ago, and he's not I wouldn't count Roger, him as Roger Marshall. Yeah. Sorry, I always say George Marshall because of you yeah. know, Roger Marshall. Yes. But he pointed to, he pointed to, you know, Kansas Republican Senator, he's a conservative, but he was like, I'm partnering with Elizabeth Warren on crypto stuff. I'm yeah, partnering yeah, with Bernie Sanders. We were part of that group. That, yeah, he wants to lower health care costs and he's working with Bernie Sanders. Like there's so much bipartisanship that is actually happening that's just not breaking through this toxicity. Um, yeah, no, and I think it's hard. I mean, we, we've seen it in the speaker vote that, and this is maybe more true in the House than the Senate. I think the Senate does have there's less of an ecosystem that rewards the crazies in the Senate as there is there is in the House. Um, you know, but we have had, you know, some of the conversations we've been having about, you know, might there be a bipartisan path forward, as we've all been saying. And I think there's a keen recognition on our side that while there are Republicans who are willing to have those conversations and talk with us, the minute we come out and say, Republican member X has a great idea and the Democrats would support it. That's now become poisonous to the, the Marjorie Taylor Greene wing of the party. And, you know, and now, you know, those people are potentially exposed to death threats. So it's it's unfortunate because you'd like to amplify those friendships, but out of friendship, we're reluctant to do so at this moment. John, thank you. Um, I could talk to you for an hour about this, but I think I'm the only one that would be interested in doing that. <laughs> but, I would. Uh, I would be Joel. Always happy <laughs> to, uh, to do the uh, do the long play album next time. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, exactly. I always enjoy being in your space. Thank you for the time. Um, you're so good to us as an industry. You're a good ally to have up there. Really appreciate everything you're doing. So, thank you so well. always, always a pleasure. Thank you as well. Joel and Blair, always great to have you here. We just heard a great interview, Joel, with you and Representative Kasten um, in the House. We'd love to hear, actually, since it was two Democrats talking to each other, I'd love to hear from you, Blair. What are your takeaways from that? I love it when Democratic members, when Democrat members talk about Republican politics. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, you know, but, but to be, you know, one of my favorite things is like, you know, you know, we had a similar margin, you know, when Congressman Kasten said we had a similar margin, um, you know, when they had Speaker Pelosi and they were able to pass things and, and I'm like, but, but they were, they also had their own challenges, but I think the, you know, what they had, what we didn't have is that Speaker Pelosi was able to keep her people in line and the Republican party is not in the house. Um, I think, you know, Senator McConnell is able to do it on 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 the Senate side, um, but we don't have that that leadership and that strength on the House side, unfortunately. Um, and it is, I, I, you know, talking with friends, one of my friends said, um, you know, I don't even think Ronald Reagan could be elected speaker right now. And I and I, you know, I, I chuckled, but I'm like, wow, I think that's right. I think we for whatever it is. Um, we're at this point right now. I don't know what's going to change. Um, I think Congressman Jim Jordan is losing that confidence um, from the people that voted for him, those ones that were on the fence. Um, you know, and in speaking with some of those members, his tactics um, had a lot to do with it um, and how he behaved after the vote of confidence for Steve Scalise and when Steve Scalise lost the vote, how he behaved during that process. Um, and then how he has behaved and how he has reacted to the death threats that members of Congress have gotten since they, you know, when they didn't vote for him as speaker. And so it's, you know, what what does he expect? What does, you know, Congressman Jim Jordan expect when he has never voted for a farm bill? And if that's your number one priority, of course, it's going to be difficult to support that, you know, that person as speaker. Um, so it, we're in a, as Joel Coppard would say, we're in a dark time. Um, yes. and no one, no one sees the light at the end of the tunnel because no one, you know, when you, a grenade and a bomb was thrown and, um, there's no plan on how to pick up the pieces. And so that's where we are right now. And it's, um, it's unfortunate because there are a lot of things going on in the world right now. Um, and personally, I don't know if we have the leadership and, on the, you know, in the the presidential administration to to lead without the House and the Senate. So yeah, you know. I you know it definitely came through in the interview. All those those points that you made. Um, you know, the violence, the political violence that's happening that seems to be okay. Um, all of that is it's troubling. Um, Joel, I don't know if you have any final takeaways from that. Um, you know, any just thoughts from chatting with him. No, I thought it kind of speaks for itself. I would just like to say generally, like everything that we try to do on this podcast is just showcase and highlight the bipartisanship that does actually get through. And that is there. Um, and you could you could you heard we tried to highlight that, but it kind of came to the flop because there was a lot of yeah, but 
um, it's difficult to break through. But the most frustrating thing, and we'll transition into our parochial issues here real quick, but I think the frustrating thing is that the bipartisanship agenda is what's being held hostage, obviously. You know, the business agenda, no matter what you're lobbying for as an advocate, as a business advocate, it, everything is stalled and it's all being hijacked and it's frankly being held hostage. And I get frustrated and I, I know Blair has heard me say this a million times, but the term rhino has been used to describe moderate Republicans to try to pigeonhole them, Republicans in name only. Trump had kind of brought that to the next level and popularized that. And at what point I feel like, are, is that gonna be flipped to these extremists? You are not a Republican. The, the extremists are not Republicans. They are not, they don't want to govern. Republicans are, the Republican party that I knew, like Blair just said, Ronald Reagan could not be elected speaker right now. Like the Republican party that I'm familiar with wants strong, free, fair, competitive markets to thrive. They want to be defense hawks. They want to fight our wars overseas off of our lands. They want to promote democracies around the world. That's not what these extremists are advocating for, and they're hijacking all the goodwill. Um, in the House of Representatives, bills that have over 300 votes of support that would pass with flying colors, aid for Israel, aid for Ukraine, funding the federal government, the very basic stuff, but not a lot. But in addition to our own parochial priorities, lowering health care costs, you know, strengthening and reforming the flood insurance program, lots of bipartisan support for these things that just can't break through. And it's just, it's not even that, you know, it's not, it's not indicative of one party or the other. I think it's more indicative of the political system that's evolved over time that rewards chaos on the extreme and people leave voting. They no longer vote in primaries because they don't like how the parties have been hijacked. Now I will move on to our current issues. Um, I know there's stuff going on that you all would love to share with our listeners. Not nearly as much as we would, as we would hope for. I mean, obviously the legislative agenda right now is... <laughs> Not moving uh, to stand still, but there was actually some good progress on our cannabis legislation recently. Uh, if you if you attended our ILF or listened to our last podcast, which was released at the at ILF in uh, October, you heard this update. Um, but it's worth sharing with everyone. I've actually talked to some Senate staff since then um, that the Senate Banking Committee passed for the first time this, the cannabis legislation that we've been advocating for for years, which would allow financial services and insurance services to be offered to businesses uh, that are part of the cannabis industry without running afoul of federal law. Uh, we've got our language in there to make sure that we are carved out uh, and we've been big advocates for it. Um, that similar legislation has passed the House six times in the previous Congress, um, never got any traction in the Senate. So the fact that it made it through the Senate Banking Committee on a bipartisan vote is very, very good news. Uh, and I talked with some Hill staffers that are working behind the scenes in the Senate side to try to figure out how to get this to the president's desk. Uh, the Senate agenda is um, stacked and complicated and getting anything through the Senate maze takes a lot of time. You need uh, generally to, to reach a 60 vote threshold to get anything done. They actually did not see a path for cannabis on the Senate floor, uh, but they did see a path on attaching it to what would be considered must pass legislation in December. And they are working to pre-conference, what we call pre-conferencing with the House side. There are some issues that um, that some Republicans on the Financial Services Committee have with the latest iteration that was just passed uh, with Senate banking. Language that has nothing to do with the cannabis portion, I might add. It has to do with some banking language. Um, and they are going to add some crypto language to appease some 
Republicans on the financial services side with the hopes that they would cobble something together that everyone, even if they are detractors of the marijuana industry at large, they would hold their nose and not oppose it. So all to say that I think the next big hurdle for this, which would hopefully be a good um, moment, will be in December when they presumably we have a speaker and the agenda is unlocked. Uh, and they're moving forward on legislation. Hopefully this would be a pass attached to a broader omnibus bill. But that that's a lot of ifs, ands, and buts. And that is assuming that, I mean, with theirs, they're, they're struggling to fund the federal government. So whatever we consider must pass legislation these days might be a different definition than it was a couple months ago. But all said and done, I think that's very positive news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, Blair, any anything on flood? I know that has to get through, or are we just in kind of sitting and waiting? It does. I mean, I think the current environment that we're in, probably from now until the end of time. Kidding. I'm. I think from from for now until you know the next probably couple of years is we're just going to be doing short term reauthorizations. Um, you know, it, it's going to be hard to do any long term reform and even any long term reauthorizations. Um, I think just the politics of it and, and who you have um, sitting in Congress right now um, is 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 going to be difficult. So, you know, first, I think for industry, the goal is just to make sure that it's reauthorized um, and still trying to figure out operating within risk rating 2.0. And then I know FEMA is trying to you know, do some internal things like update policy forms and, um, you know, making sure that, you know, kind of write your owns across the board are, in, you know, instituting risk rating 2.0 in the same way. And, um, you know, for, for us, it's, you know, I always say first, you know, first thing, reauthorization of the NFIP and then no cuts to broker compensation and then continuous coverage and then propping, you know, how can we, you know, make sure that the, the private market is is accessible. Um, but I think for for now into the foreseeable future, it's just going to be short term reauthorizations. And then crop insurance, um, we are looking at possibly another a short term reauthorization for that. Um, we're caught in the farm, you know, the farm bills reauthorized every five years. We're caught in a a standstill now. Um, and so I think it's just going to be a year long extension for the farm bill. Um, I think that even without, you know, the House not having a speaker, um, there were going to be some issues that made a, a short term authorization needed anyway. Um, but I think compounded with with no speaker, um, we're headed toward a kind of just like a clean extension for one year. So. All right. Well, just we'll keep kicking the can down the road, I guess. <laughs> um, as we go along. Yeah, we'll just make we'll just make those, you know, state state laws and regulations even, you know, stronger and broader while the federal government <laughs> fails to act. <laughs> uh. All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much, Joel. Great interview. Um, really interesting and um, insightful. So enjoyed it as always. Perfect. Thanks, Sandy. That was the Council's Government Affairs team, Blair Bartlett and Joel Kofferud, and a great interview with Representative Sean Caston of Illinois. Thanks for joining us. You can find more Leaders Edge podcasts at leadersedge.com.